0: Beloved, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. If you're visiting with us and do not have a copy of God's Word, please help yourself to one. You'll see it in the rack in front of you, God's Word there. You can follow along, the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, and can turn to chapter 3, chapter 3. Last week, of course, we opened up chapter 3 and a look at the call of God. That's where we were last week, the call of God. In the opening verses of this chapter, we studied four elements of that call that we found here in the beginning. First, we observe that the call of God always begins, here it is, right away with God's preparation. God's preparation. Look at verse 1. What did we say? Simply, God prepares the one that he calls, and that preparation is testing, and it is time. And for Moses, that preparation, do you remember, it was 40 years in the wilderness tending sheep. And not only tending to messy sheep, that's one thing, but tending to and shepherding someone else's sheep, that's preparation, And in preparation, Moses was faithful for four decades as a shepherd for his father-in-law, Jethro. In fact, as chapter 3 opens, we find him busy doing just that, and we remarked on that last week, didn't we? So important. That's the way it should be in preparation. Moses, not caught with his feet in concrete and paralysis, but Moses getting busy with the work and the faithfulness to God. That was one, God's preparation. We also witnessed in this chapter, two, God's presentation. God's presentation. After the thorough preparation, God then presents himself to Moses as, remember, the angel of the Lord, a manifestation of God in a burning bush that is not consumed. And in that presentation, we noted a couple very important details. Number one, The call of God is initiated by God. This is so obvious and hardly needs to be mentioned, but it is so important. Brothers and sisters, it's this. God comes to Moses. God comes to Moses. When God calls, he initiates. He comes to us. It's not the other way around. God is the initiator. And secondly, we said that that initiating call of God is actually no different to other calls in Scripture. Who did we talk about? We talked about Gideon, Samuel, the prophets, the apostles, all of them, God initiating and calling them. Often they're busy farming, fishing, even one is sleeping when God calls. And just like we were when we think of sleep, when we think of an unresponsive state, at salvation we were busy, what, in spiritual death, Ephesians 2 also we consider, that call and that presentation of the call, to service, to service, to ministry. Many of us occupied elsewhere doing other occupations and vocations. Then God in broke and he called. So that was God's presentation. Then we considered another in the call of God, God's placement. God's placement. This is where God places us closer to him. This is, as we said, a call to holiness. Placing us in a holy place. The call of God always goes hand in hand with the call to holiness. Beloved, that's just so important. God calls you and He calls you to be holy. God called Moses on that mountain and He set him apart, but then more, He told him, remember to remove the things, here it is, that impede close relationship. Remove the things that impair intimacy. Remove them. Like filthy sandals. God says, I want you close to me, fully devoted to me. And we looked at Hebrews 12, confirming the same thing in the New. We said that holiness is about our proximity to the presence of God. That's what we're talking about with holiness. Thus, the call of God places us closer to God and thus requires us to remove the things, and can I submit to you anything, whatever it is, that blocks our drawing close and having close intimacy with God. We are to remove them. Whatever it is. Yes, even good things. Even those things that may seem innocent. We remove them if it blocks intimacy and holiness with God. Now, of course, we closed our time last week with a look at one more element here God's promise. God's promise. The call of God is always a call made by way of promise fulfillment. In these opening verses, God reminds Moses of the promise to his fathers. Remember verse 6? The promise originally given to Abraham, by the way, which is found in Genesis 15, which becomes the motivation for God calling and moving here. God promised, thus God calls. And what we have in verse 10, as you look at that, that's where we left off, is simply now the action on that promise. Let's look at it again as we just re-enter this text. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now that's a straightforward promise, isn't it? That's pretty clear. And That's where we left off. God has called Moses. He has spoken initially. Clearly and directly, right? Very clear. Of course, other than a simple here I am in verse 4, remember that, we haven't heard from Moses. God has laid out the call to Moses, but we haven't really heard from him. So how will this Midian exile, this veteran shepherd, this family man respond to God? Well, Moses indeed responds to God, and it is an extended response. In fact, we could more accurately say it is an extended protest to God. In a prolonged resistance that marked this, extends well into chapter 4. In fact, Moses comes at it five different ways in protest to God. And in these five protests, we will continue to observe Elements to the call of God. Each one of the protests reveals something about the call of God in our lives. So we're just going to simply continue. Section by section, continuing in this account. Next, God's presence. God's presence. Look at verse 11 with me. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, This is God. But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Moses comes out of the gate with a fundamental protest here. Do you see it? It simply is this. This is it. Who am I? You've just unveiled this program, and Moses says, who am I? Now, church, listen. This is indeed a protest. It is a protest. We don't want to diminish that. But this is not some feigned humility, some false humility. This is not the who me, and he's got a proud smirk in the background, of course, you're asking me, right? No, this isn't false humility here. This is real. It's a protest against God, but it's real. And we know that, why? Because we know our God. Put scripture together, James 4, 6. Would God be talking to Moses when the Word of God says, God opposes the proud? By the way, James 4.6 is taken from Proverbs 3.34. That's a truth of your God. God does not call the proud, here it is, as the proud cannot be used by God and for his glory. You see that? He cannot use one that's seeking his own glory. He, he would not use such a one. Nor could he, not in line with his character. No, here Moses is exhibiting self-distrust, that's it, self-distrust of a useful variety. A useful variety. This is Moses looking at his circumstance honestly and saying, God, who am I? Who am I? Now again, this is protest, but this is humble protest. Let's look again deeply at verse 11 to pull this out. Who am I but a shepherd these 40 years far from the courts of Egypt? Who am I but a lowly shepherd to dare go against Pharaoh, the mightiest of men? We could say, who am I to lead a people out from under that slavery and bondage? You can just imagine for a moment, a moment what Moses is looking at. This is honest self-assessment by Moses. This Midian shepherd, 40 years, will go against the most powerful man in the world. He's honest. And in that humility, in that honesty, mark it, beloved, he is ready. He is ready. There's no self-deception here. He's ready. Well, God responds to this humble protest, and his response is most noteworthy. Look at verse 12. God says, but I will be with you. Stop there. I will be with you. You know, all that God will say could be summed up right there with this response to Moses. We could just stop it right there. God says simply, I will be with you. In other words, you have my presence with you. Beloved, the call of God is always fortified with the presence of God. The call of God is always fortified with the presence of God. What a comfort. What assurance. And listen, can there be any greater assurance? I mean, creator of heaven and earth says, I'm with you. Is there any other assurance needed? Creator of heaven and earth says, I'm with you. I'm with you. This is not a human companion for Moses. Listen, take the mightiest of men, and he's going to get one for sure in Joshua. His brother is going to be raised up. He's going to have an entourage around him. That's coming. But this is God's presence more than any of those in whatever he calls his children to do. That entourage, as we will see later in Exodus, will fail him. But God will not. God says, I'm with you. Beloved, this core truth of God's call is true of all that are truly God's. Track with me. Genesis 31.3. Do you remember God calls Jacob out of Laban's house and he says, come back home. Come back home to your land, my land. And then what does he say at the end of that account? He says, do this and I will be with you. I will be with you, Jacob. Deuteronomy 31, 23, God calls Joshua, this is the heir apparent to Moses. He calls that future leader to lead after Moses. And what does he say in verse 23? He says, do this and I will be with you. What about Judges 6, in an account that's very similar, the narrative very similar to what we're seeing here with Gideon. Gideon has protests, of course, for God. When God calls Gideon as judge to deliver Israel from the Midianites, listen to this. Gideon's protest, and you'll hear the echo, says this. Gideon says to God, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and worse than that, I'm the weakest in my father's house. Yes, but God says this in verse 16, such a clear, clear comeback to Gideon. He says, yes, but I will be with you. I will be with you. What about the Great Commission? Do you remember that? When God called the apostles to go into all the world. Do you remember that scene? Some stood, and it stands out at the end of Matthew 28, and it says, and some what? Doubted. And some doubted. Like Moses here. And God caps his call, the Great Commission. He caps it with this, Matthew twenty-eight twenty, I am with you always to the end of the age. Don't worry, I am with you. I am with you. When God calls Christian, he does not call you alone. Are you comforted by that today? He doesn't call you alone. God calls you and says, I am with you. I am with you. God confirms his presence in this call. Look at this with a sign in verse 12, which is this. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God says, I won't only be with you before Pharaoh. I mean, look at this assurance. But when you return to I mean, that's a guarantee, and ongoing right here on this very mountain, which, of course, when we think about Horeb, Sinai, the mountain of God, that is precisely what happens, is it not? It all comes to pass, and that is because it's God's presence throughout and in every detail in this call of God, always calling and always remaining with those he calls. Don't miss that, Westmount. Always remaining with those that he calls. We must continue and move on to verse 13 and the next element. That was God's presence. Now we look at God's preeminence. God's preeminence. Here we find Moses' next protest. Look at verse 13. He just keeps going. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? You know, along with concerns of himself, Moses here presents concerns for God's people. Moses is thinking ahead now. Moses says, well, what of them? They will ask, who sent me, and what do I say? Moses is doubting his reception here. That's what's going on. His protest is now focused on how the people are going to take him. But again, in his genuine protest, Moses is missing the bigger picture, and we need to mention before we get to God's well-known response that God has not been unfamiliar to his people up to this point. Let's not miss this. God has been very familiar to his people, right? So this is not a matter of being introduced to God. God called Abraham, and Abraham knew him like Isaac, like Jacob. Look at verse 6. As such, God's people, again, don't need an introduction as much as they need this. Now, here it is, a reminder and a powerful reminder. A simple yet direct and in-your-face reminder of who was visiting them. Remember this for a moment. Let's get a little historical context. It had been 400 years of living in a pagan culture. Beloved, 400 years under pagan rule. And more, in that culture, living in a polytheistic, which means many gods, a pantheistic, God is in everything, and a syncretistic, let's just put all that together and just stir it up and whatever comes out. That was the Egyptian world. Would Israel know him? What might happen if you're immersed in that kind of environment for 400 years? Even more, we've known of no revelation of God between the patriarchs in Genesis and Moses in Egypt. One hardly needs to think long of what could happen over that time span in a pagan environment. The generation after Jacob and very likely all subsequent generations up to Moses had lost a measure and likely an increasing measure of the knowledge of the true God and presumably, here we zero in, his preeminence in their lives. It had likely waned at this point. Can you imagine all the other things that would have risen up around them? Thus, and that's the context, Moses' request for a name here may do nothing more than sadly reveal where his people are at. You see that? Simply revealing where they're at. Could it be, yes, that they've just simply forgotten their God? In the wake of that sad request, God responds in verse 14. Look with me. God said to Moses, I am... Who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God says, look at it, I am who I am. That is an opening grand statement of God's preeminence. God says, say this to my people, I am has sent me to you. Look at that there, and you can see the constructions, you'll have capital letters and so forth. Yes, a simple first person form. I am, of the verb of being, which is simply the verb of being is to be. That's all that that is. In fact, we could render it this way. The one who is has sent me to you. You could say it that way. Here is where we derive the divine name. Many of you know the divine name, Yahweh. Or, said that way, it's he is. That would be in the third person. You might know it as the tetragrammaton or the four letters, Y-H-W-H. Later would be Jehovah. You may know it that way as well. It's noted in most translations, look down at yours, Lord, probably in capital letters. Some of them uh, smaller than others, but all caps. Now, there's just so much we can say about the divine name, how it became unpronounceable when they did something with the pointings. We can talk about how uh, it became uh, sacrilegious to say and even utter this name. There's so many things that we can say about the divine name, but we don't want to lose sight of the point here. All of that suffices to say that the point of the name and the encounter here was for God's people to be reminded of their preeminent God, the only God, contrary to their surroundings. Now again, by way of a final comment on the great I am, Sometimes it's helpful to hear it articulated by some of the great thinkers. Again we turn to the 19th century commentator Bush responding to what is it what is this great I am what is going on here. I'll quote him in full. He says this: "The title I am properly denotes the underived, eternal and unchangeable existence of the great being to whom it is applied, carrying in it also the implication, now listen to this, that he in distinction from all others, is the one and only true God. Note this. The God who really is. While all the pretended deities of the Egyptians and other nations were a vanity, a non-entity, and a lie. Can't say it any better than that. He is because he's the only one. He says, I'm the great I am. There is no other. He is God alone. There is no other. That's it. He reminds Moses and by extension his people that he has not changed or digressed over 400 years. Nor will he, by the way, moving forward. God's existence remains unchanged. He just simply is the great I am. No title other than the preeminent name of being. The verb of being, in all its simplicity, there is no other fitting name. He is. He is. That's what's needed. Again, what God's people need here is not an intro. This is not Israel meet God. This is an unforgettable reminder, a preeminent reminder. And the next verses show us just that. Look at verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. Now here, note the reminder. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. There's familiarity. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, there it is again, The God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I've observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. You see that? He continues to reference, a point of reference for them, the God of their fathers. We continue in verse 17, and I promise, there's the promise again, that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now, Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. A bit of an extended response from God, again noting his preeminence in so many ways. So, very many ways. Let's look at it again as we drill down. God says, look at verses 15 and 16, your fathers knew me. Then he reminds Moses of the promise. Look at verse 17. He mentions it again in verse 17. And this time he follows it, note it, with a detailed account of exactly how that promise is going to unfold. Pharaoh will not listen, so what? I will outstretch my hand, and then God says, watch this. I, the preeminent one, look at verse 21, will give this people favor in your sight. Amazing. Yes, the Egyptians will gladly turn over goods to you. You shall plunder them. You can just imagine how the shepherd's taking this in. The mightiest people in the world will just hand over their goods to you. God says, and here it is, that is who I am. Amazing. That is God's preeminence. And the call of God. But there's so much more here. Not only his preeminence, his power. God's power. The call continues into chapter 4 where we see another protest right away. Moses is undaunted with his protests here. Good verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Moses the manifestation of his doubt now and his protest considers the question of authority. You see that? Moses says, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. By the way, another derivative of who am I? And church this protest cannot be more relevant to God's people of all time. I mean, we struggle with authority, don't we? We just have a very hard time with authority. From a very early age, one of the first manifestations of the sinful human condition is what in the little one? Says who? Says who? Well, here you see, even over three millennia ago, this was an issue, and by the way, an enduring issue for God's people. And yes, beloved, hear me, we're talking about God's people, at least in name, today. Just like God's people back then, Israel. Resisting the authority, this is what God's people have demonstrated over and over again. Resisting the authority of God. God's people in rebellion against his word, his truth, attempting to redefine ancient truths. It just seems like an avalanche today. People deconstructing their Christianity, redefining the way they want to live for the Lord. It's overwhelming. People in rebellion against his church, people leaving a church. Why? Because they don't like something, because it's not of their opinion, because they don't prefer that, because it doesn't go by their menu. People in rebellion against his structures, the elders, parents, husbands, the list goes on. If there's an authority, we find a way to rebel against it. And, beloved, yes, I'm talking about us. God's people, church, this is nothing new. We have an allergy to authority, just like Israel did. We do. Such God graciously gives, here it is, authentication. And know that, beloved, in our rebellion, this is grace. Do, do, would we even warrant such with that rebellious posture that we just don't seem to want to shake? No, but God gives grace. I mean, if anyone should not need authoritative proof, it's Who? God's people, right? If anyone shouldn't need signs and wonders, it's us. Yet here we'll see God give it, and not just once, but three times. Three powerful signs back to back. Let's preview them in full. We'll pull back, and then we're going to make some comments. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. The Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. You look at those demonstrations again powerfully given in their demonstration back to back, and you consider for a moment that the Lord is doing here what man cannot do. Do you see that? The Lord is doing something here three times, demonstrating what man cannot do, and that's so important. The Lord, and only the Lord, only God alone, suspends the fixed laws of nature as a demonstration of his power. The Lord takes Moses' staff and supernaturally turns it into a snake. By the way, the vivid reality of that miracle is confirmed by Moses' reaction. Look at verse 3. You almost have a moment where where you, you see the vividness. It says, Moses, what? He ran from it. That's how real that snake was. This is not some toy shop prop. This is a real living serpent. And God turns it then back again. Then says in verse 5, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Note the consistency of God, pointing back to the point of reference all the time. I have not changed. the same God. Same God calling you. God then takes Moses' hand, look at it, and turns it leprous before turning it back again. In that second sign, look at verse 8. God says, he does it if they didn't believe the first staff snake sign. I mean, it's almost incredible if it wasn't right there in Scripture. If they don't believe this, then how about this? And in the wake of that, incredibly, God offers a third sign. If there's still unbelief, as God says in verse 9, almost by way of preview, by the way, think about water to blood, which we're going to see in chapter 7, God says, take a bit of the Nile water, pour it on the dry ground, and watch as it becomes blood on that dry ground. Wow. Beloved, God gives these signs to validate the authority of the messenger. Do you see that? That's why he's giving these signs. That's it. To validate the authority of the messenger. And this is what you see later in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha and First and Second Kings. Powerful miracles by those two. Elijah and Elisha, food miraculously created, lepers healed, even dead raised. This is what you see later in the New Testament, in the ministry of the apostles, in the book of Acts. Similarly, the sick are healed, the dead are awoken, and snakes even rendered impotent at the end of Acts. The Corinthian church, in their rebellion, by the way, right? Remember the Corinthians and what they wanted They they love the showy, the signs. They're reminded of this in 2 Corinthians 12.12. A bit of the purpose here. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. In other words, here it is, as a demonstration. That's why they were given. God's power given, and note this, at specific times for a specific purpose. I can't say that enough. It's so key. And we note those special times, rare times in history that God does this. Because if we don't, beloved, if we don't, we start looking for that kind of power all the time. Is that not true? We want this. That eye-popping demonstration. I know you've heard someone on TV that would claim this, or you read something online that would claim this. We start looking for those signs and wonders now. We want that miracle working today. And that is why it bubbles up if we're not careful, and you hear people, even in the church, maybe even you, and you're going to say something like, God, give me a sign. Pretty innocuous, right? You're just trying to discern something. What do you say? Give me a sign. Show me it's you. If we're not careful... And that demand for authority may seem veiled and innocent. West Mount Mark, this is nothing short of unbelief. A demand for a sign always reveals the unbelief in our heart. A demand for a sign always reveals unbelief in our heart. God authenticated the apostles and Moses here. But when we are called today... A very different time, and I'm going to show this to you, God's power in our call today is not that of Moses, is not that Elisha and Elijah, it's not that of apostles. You say, how? Turn to 1 Corinthians 1. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1. In fact, I would submit to you, we have a power much greater than those earthly shows. Much greater Remember the Corinthian church? What do they want? At the end of this letter, you get what in 1 Corinthians 12 13 14. They want the flamboyance. They want the show. And this is Paul opens up this letter talking about look, that's the stuff that kind of lust for those kinds of things is of the world. That's the wisdom of the world. And you need to talk about the power of God. Look what he says here. Let's zone right in to verse 18. He says, for the word, note that, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. That's no less true today, is it not? What you're doing here this morning with this book open, that's foolishness to people in the world. But to us who are being saved, what? It is the power of God. So what's the power here? Connect the dots. The word in your hand. You want the power of God? It's right there in your hand. There's nothing more supernatural than living words that transcend time, that change lives of all time. You have it right in your hand. Verse 24, look at verse 24. But to those who are what? Let's connect some dots again. Called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ what? The power of God and the wisdom of God. Beloved, why would we want anything more than Christ in His Word? When you are called, if you're in Christ today, you've been called, and that's the power that you have. The Word of God in your hands, right? And Christ Himself. That's the power of God in the call of God. We must move on. To the next element here, that was God's power. Look at now God's provision. God has responded to each of the first three protests of Moses. Amazing grace by God, by the way. Do you see that? He's just enduring with Moses, his attempts and his humble protests. Yet, Moses is not done. He's not done. Look at verse 10 as we turn back to Exodus. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent. Either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. You know, much has been made of Moses' protest here. Maybe you have heard that Moses had a speech impediment. Maybe you have heard that Moses just really wasn't the talking type. Well, friends, most of those types of explanations, listen, just for one level, don't even fit with the context, do they? They don't fit. Moses seems to have absolutely no problem talking here. And Moses not only has no issue talking, which, by the way, not just here, becomes clear in the rest of the Pentateuch, but Moses spent 40 years where? In the courts of Egypt. If anyone is qualified to talk in the courts of Egypt, it's who? Of every Israelite? Moses. It is exactly Moses who has been called Moses who's been provided, the circumstances, the vessel, the mouth, it's been Moses who has been raised up for a time such as this. Remember God's providence. Added to that, if we were to consider the historical context here, and that's important, Moses' response makes even more sense. This is anything but a negative. This is not some humble human being recognizes some infirmities with the way that he speaks, so he just needs to get up to the rest of us and speak. No, this is Moses recognizing it would take anyone of eloquence to dare go into the courts. In ancient Near East times, you didn't dare go into the king's presence. I mean, you talk about your body, let alone your mouth. Think of the book of Esther. This is Moses saying, me, you want me to enter. This is... This is royal eloquence that Moses says, I I don't have. I don't have. And as Moses' protests were each met by God, the weight of the task set in. There it is. And the mounting thought of going back to Egypt in that royal court was just too much. Almost in desperation, uh, Moses blurts out a version of, I'm not made for this. Right? You can imagine staff in hand, shepherdly royal, I'm not made for this. Well, listen, let's zone in right here. The creator of man, the one who made Moses, certainly deserves a hearing here, right? I mean, the one that constructed and wove together his mouth in Jacobed's womb, he deserves a hearing. Is that not true? What does he have to say about the mouth that he's given him? We hear from him in verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go. And here it is again. I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. God reminds Moses of the obvious. Who made you? Who made your mouth? God says, I didn't just provide you with a mouth. Listen to me. I made your mouth. It is specifically crafted for my purposes in you. And as if Moses needed more provision than that, a custom made mouth would be one thing. God adds this in verse 12. He says, I will actually be with your mouth, and I'm going to teach you your mouth what to speak. God provides the mouth and the instruction. That is comprehensive provision. And we could add, Moses, at this point, you have no excuse. Moses, there's no excuse. God has provided you all that you need. Yet, as we add our chiding to Moses, we need to be reminded of our own echoes. How many of us, when called by God to a service, to a place, to a decision, to a choice, to a life, we say in protest, you know, Lord, I'm unable to do that. You know what, Lord, I'm actually not made for that. So I can't really do that. That's my protest. I'm not made for that. You've called me to it, but I'm not made for that. That kind of protest in God's call is not unlike the nonsensical protest of the fabled kettle. You know that kettle protesting to its blacksmith maker. Oh, my blacksmith, I am not very good at this boiling water thing. I'm just not a boiler of water. Never have been, really. It's not me. It's not me. Beloved, if you're called by God, mark this, if you're called by God, then you're provided for by God. Whatever it is God calls you to do, a sinful choice to turn from it, the call to ministry, the call to salvation itself, he provides you all that you need, all that you need. If you're called by God, then you're provided for by God. Don't resort to illogic as Moses does here. Instead, just say yes and obey. Obey God. Now, with all the protests, it would seem exhausted. Moses has only one option left. This is it. He pulls out the trump card at the end. He realizes he's wrestling with God, and there's only one left, right? And it's the will. And his final protest sets us up for our final element in God's call, and it's God's patience. God's patience. Moses, again, you are just flat out of excuses. Now what? Now what? Well, Moses' final move for us this morning could be eerily familiar. It is the final straw that we often turn to when God calls us, yes, brothers and sisters. I think we will know this too well. Look at verse 13. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. With nowhere to turn, nowhere else to turn, Moses just says this. You can feel the desperation, can't you? No. God, send someone else. We hear that, whether we admit it or not. Christian, how many times have you said no to God? How many times have you said no to God? God called you to repent and turn to him. You waited. You called for more information. You wanted more evidence and signs. You said you weren't ready. You needed to clean up your life. And on and on and on. And finally, he saved you. God calls you to obey and let go of something. He calls you to obey and let go of something and what did you say? What do you say? You say No. No. Maybe God called you to a ministry, a service, or a need, and you just flatly in desperation said, no. No. Maybe today you sit here in the middle of God's call on your life right now. Whatever it is, and the call of God has been made clear to you through people, through circumstances, maybe through the word this morning, And your excuses are all used up. You have no other excuse. And the only answer for the obedient, God-fearing Christian is obvious. Yet again, you sit there defiant and you say no. Well, if that is you, if this text contains a few things that you just need to see, and we all need to see them. Look at verse 14. the signs. Friend, when you say no to the call of God in your life, whatever it may be today, remember this. Number one, you kindle God's anger. Look at verse 14. You kindle God's anger. That is absolutely, and it should be, terrifying. Terrifying. And I'm quite sure if we're all being honest, nobody wants that. I will let the implications of that in all of our lives just sort themselves out. Deuteronomy 6.16 says this, You shall not put the Lord God to the test. Don't do that. Two, when you say no to God, you miss an opportunity. God raises up someone else for what he made you to do. It's not as if God says, Oh, well, you know what, I'm going to think of something else. God's plans will not be thwarted. God says here, I will take your brother then. And in verse 14, look at this. Aaron's coming out to meet you and lo and behold he will be note this this would be a stinger to Moses he will be glad in his heart you see that he's glad Moses knew protest not joy Aaron not you will do the speaking he verse 16 shall speak for you to the people I'm sure Moses felt the sting of that and Christian I know we have we say no, only to watch the Lord work joyfully through another. Now that would be enough to change our hearts towards God's call, I would hope. Yet for some, maybe, they may say, yeah, that stings a bit, but at least I don't have to. I don't mind missing an opportunity, because I don't have to. And to that we give the third and final detail that we need to see. To that enduring no, to that terminal resistance. Note this in verse 15. I will teach you both what to do. That's right. Moses doesn't get to stay in Midian. He still will go. In the end, the protests, even the ones to the heart, do not hold up to God. And listen. For those that are genuinely the Lord's, genuinely in Christ, with a regenerated heart, and actual born-again, saved Christians, listen to me, God always gets his way in the call on your life. And beloved, I think we can agree, thankfully so. Is that not true? Praise God, he always gets his way. Oh, how often Do we look back at our lives and do we just raise our hands and say, thank God he overrode my horrendous decisions? Thank God. And that is because, theologically, our stubborn wills, no matter how stubborn we are, if we're in Christ, they cannot break God's sovereign will. His plans will come to pass. We just bring the scars along the way with all our protests. And here, in humanity, stubbornness, that we were going to see, and we see now here as we close this section of God's call, God's patience. And I know, church, you agree, it is incredible to behold. I mean, just look at Moses here as we end. Have you ever encountered someone with as many excuses as Moses? I mean, have you ever seen anything like this? And in Moses, we're talking about Moses. Yes, maybe us, right? Right? Maybe us. Maybe in the quietness of your soul you say, wow, five? That's all he had was five? I've got to beat. Parents, grandparents, friends, we know how grossly impatient we are. Beloved, is it not true? We know how selfish we are. We will not let go sometimes. Yet we can thank God that he is not so. He is not impatient when God calls, he is patient. He is patient. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, as the apostle looks back on God's call in his life, he says this in 1 Timothy 1.16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ, note this, might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That's a testimony of Paul. Christian, as we consider the call of God in Moses' life, we see the call of God in ours today. I think we do. As new covenant Christians like Paul, that call of God is by way of the Son of God. Yes, those elements of God's call are all found, every one of them, in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. God's call is Christ's presence John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Christ's presence. God's call is Christ's preeminence as Gabe read for us this morning. John 8, 58, Jesus said, remember that interchange? Those hostile Pharisees before Abraham was what? I am. That's Christ's preeminence. God's call is Christ's power. Ephesians 1.20, the power worked in Christ to save us. That would be us, you and I, church. That's Christ's power, even as we read in 1 Corinthians 1. God's call is also Christ's provision. One of the most infamous verses of the New Testament that's always or often quoted incorrectly Philippians 4.13 says this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No, it's not saying it can do any women desire of your heart. It means that in Christ, as Paul says, I've been high, I've been low, and I have learned what it means to be content. Because in everything God called Paul to, in Christ he is provided for. And thus he can do all things in Christ's provision. And finally, God's call is Christ's patience. 2 Peter 3.9 says our Lord is patient toward us. That would be you and I, Christian. That is patience so that none of his own, as chosen, should perish, but rather reach repentance. That is Christ's patience, his slow, long-suffering, his perfect patience with the Apostle Paul. Church, that is how we have been called by God, through Christ and now in Christ, And now, let us do what is the only fitting thing to do with our own calls, with our own calls of loudest praise to him. Let us do that together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this truth of the call that you make on our lives. And Lord, for many of us, we're reminded of that call, maybe to salvation for others right now with something we're wrestling with, to sanctification. And God, I pray whatever the stead is, Those still in rebellion to you for eternal destiny or those of us that know you, but still stubbornly holding on to something. God, we pray that you would break our hearts because your will will not be thwarted. God, we beg you to do that so that not only we would be growing and conforming to the image of Christ, but that you would be glorified in the call you've given to us. Oh God, we pray that now in Christ's name, amen.